This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas A&M University. With land, sea, and space grant designations, Texas A&M is the state's premier Tier 1 research university, serving all 254 counties in Texas. And Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future, because the future of Texas is in our public schools. Find out more at raiseyourhandtexas.org. Hello, and welcome to the July 22nd edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello there. Hello. Executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And managing editor Matthew Watkins. Hello. All right. Well, let's hope this virtual TribCast will run smoother than the Texas GOP convention did, because what a cluster that seemed to be. I, I think uh, it already has. I think we can already claim that victory. <laughs> is it over? Is it, is it still going or is it over? Is it finally over? We didn't have to immediately adjourn because we couldn't get credentials. <laughs> uh, well, thankfully, we've got a very credentialed person here to lay some of this out. Cassie, the week before last week, we were talking about some of the drama leading up to the convention as everyone played a sort of convention hot potato on whether to cancel the in-person component of it that was supposed to take place in Houston, of all places, during this pandemic. How did the drama play out once the party's attempt at a virtual convention uh, got underway? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was a mess. I would, I would have to say it was a mess. Um, so yeah, so where we last left things off with, was that the, the party and, and Houston officials were uh, going back and forth, involving the you know the courts and basically trying to argue for this convention happening in person. Uh, long story short, um, their uh, most of their efforts failed, and uh, they uh, the, the state Republican executive committee voted. Monday, the Monday before um, the the convention was set to start on Thursday, voted to hold it online. Um, so Thursday rolls around, I believe like eight or nine a.m. Uh, is when things were supposed to kick off with a general session with chairman uh, uh, chairman at the time James Dickey kind of um, you know laying the groundwork for for what the next three days were going to uh, entail, and uh, you know. Uh, an hour-long delay turned into an hours-long delay, and before you knew it, they had punted things, uh, uh, you know, to to not even Friday, but to Saturday. Um, so basically, you had like a host of problems, right? You had um, thousands of delegates trying to get into a system that they weren't necessarily familiar with. Uh, you had complaints about their credentials, their, the information containing their credentials not being sent to them, or uh, you know them plugging in the information that had been sent to them and it not working. Um, and then on the other end of that, you know, for, from the party's end, you had like just a, what they more or less described as technical difficulties, not really sure like what necessarily or what exactly that, that included. Uh, but the bottom line is that, um, uh, yeah, we, we uh, nothing really went according to plan if there was one to begin with. And, uh, yeah, now we are supposed to have, um, a second convention at some point date TBD, 
Um, but what the, uh, I guess what the party did end up deciding over the weekend was, uh, who their next chairman is going to be. Um, incumbent James Dickey ended up getting ousted by former Florida Congressman Alan West pretty overwhelmingly. Um, you know, new SREC members were voted in, a vice chair was voted in, and, uh, that's about, uh, all, uh, we can say that they did. Was Dickey going to lose this race? Was, was Dickey going to lose this race with a, if the convention had gone smoothly? Or did this this mess on the weekend seal it? Uh, I'd say probably depends who you ask. Um, a lot of the SREC members and, and you know just various county party people who I was checking in with before uh, the convention, the virtual convention even started, was you know they. There was a pretty, I, I don't want to know if, I don't want to say it was like a big faction, but there was a pretty sizable faction of the party to begin with that was pretty uh, unhappy with Dickey heading into this convention before the virtual convention. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to call it a mess, a, a cluster, you know. I think like a mess that. is okay. As, as one reporter joked uh, to me yesterday, uh, the only way it could have gone worse for James Dickey is if like a truck had driven through the wall into you know the room where he was speaking via Zoom. Like literally, it just it was I, I'd say unmitigated disaster would would maybe yeah. be a phrase to say. You know, I think like for a lot of us, kind of it, it's been a fun few weeks um, following along on Twitter as the various poor reporters who have to watch these uh, virtual meetings among Republican SREC leadership have kind of tweeted all the different mishaps and things that are going on, including, you know, all the technical problems, the the people who, you know, can't seem to position their cameras right for the Zoom, the, my personal favorite, uh, Harris County, uh, or former Harris County clerk, uh, Stan's wife, singing, not realizing her mic was not on mute and singing happy birthday to someone. And a, uh, I would bring that up. You would bring nice that up. Point. She has a very nice singing voice, which I really enjoyed that one. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> it went really bad. I don't think we need to, uh, you know, uh, uh, pull back our, our punches on that one. Uh, it was, it was a, a pretty disastrous weekend for, for Dickie yeah. in particular, but also just for the nuts and bolts of the convention. Right. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would say that's an understatement. And, you know, what was kind of interesting, and this was playing out in my head while this uh, entire, uh, this entire past weekend when, you know, we kept having delays and kept having setbacks. At one point, there was a purported cyber attack uh, attempt on the party's software was, you know, before it was really, uh, you know, I want to say like two weeks ago, James Dickey, uh, was leading an SRAC meeting and said, with, you know, in like kind of an attempt to reassure everybody, like, hey, we have an on we have an ultimate contingency plan to go online if we need to. We've been working right. on this for months. Uh, you know, we've been laying the groundwork to basically move this thing online if we need to. And I don't know if, you know, that meant that maybe like only three or four people with the party were involved with that and nobody else had been brought in or if uh, that was even true to begin with. I mean, who knows? The baseline is um, there clearly weren't, uh, you know, proper, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, measures put in place before all of this started to avoid uh, what I think a lot of uh, what could avoid the, uh, you know, again, I find it hard. To <laughs> does, does, this, does this even work though? I mean, cause you know, the Democrats had an online convention, had a virtual convention and technically I think it went pretty well for them, but you know, and, and 
their big bragging point afterwards seemed to be, hey, we raised a lot of money with this thing. But in terms of having a convention and doing social politics where people are talking to each other and doing all of those kinds of things and drawing up platforms and everything, do these really work? And I'm kind of asking with an eye forward to the national conventions that are coming up. You know, um, if you're still in a position where you have to have all or some of your thing online, whether or not you have technical problems, um, is this really a political convention? I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, I've, I've only been to one GOP convention before. And the thing that struck me about it was the the difference between being in the big room where the speakers were coming up and the reaction to the speakers to the conversations happening in those like little conference rooms where people were talking about party platform. There right. is such a gap in, in the feeling and, um, the sort of sense of community um, in those rooms that I think it, it's hard to for me as a, an outsider to gauge what someone is supposed to get out of a convention. And I think it depends on what kind of activist or delegate you might be, right? Like there might be people who maybe just go for the rah-rah portion of it, maybe boo at John Cornyn when he comes up. Mm. And then there are the people who are like really invested in this platform that sometimes plays a role in in Republican politics and sometimes doesn't, right? And right. for the most part doesn't, it seems. And and so I'm I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to I think the in terms of effectiveness of a convention, it I think it probably depends on what kind of activist you are, right? Yeah, I'd put conventions on the list with uh State of the Union speeches and presidential debates on things that like we in the media treat as really important but have like devolved past the point of being useful um right. and it's like past, just an opportunity the point of being for everyone a nice phrase. <laughs> 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 and uh you know i mean i think like there's probably some value for the people who are either candidates or um you know consultants or somehow kind of work in the you know, party apparatus for, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats, where you get the opportunity to kind of network, you know, it's kind of like going to a, a work conference where it's like the the actual conference you don't get much out of. But then the like when you like gather and get drinks and chat with people and socialize and network afterwards is, is when you get kind of the just the act of all being in the same place can, can be helpful for you, you know? And I think it's probably the same thing. Like, I don't think anyone is going to, you know, look back at whatever happens in November and say, you know, the Republicans did worse or the Democrats did better or anything because, you know, one party's convention went better than the other. But, um, you know, I, I, I think you could make the argument that, um, there's some symbolism in this, and this is just kind of the latest sign of what has been just a very not great few months for the Texas GOP for kind of a variety of different reasons. And it all just kind of, it felt like it was all coming to head in this, you know, glitchy GOP yeah. convention. The, the one difference between the, the two party conventions is that the, the Republican Party you know, like almost prides itself on breaking up into these Senate, you know, Senate district or congressional district caucuses and like getting really intense about the debate, whether it's over what the legislative, what the party's legislative priority should be uh, or, you know, party platforms or casting votes for a party chair or vice chair. And then that's like reflected when you get to these general sessions and there's like more like back and forth and more debate and more vote casting and more amendments to amendments. 
Um, and then, so that was like when we did have an up and going virtual convention this past weekend, that's what it was, uh, compared to the Democrats virtual convention, which was more or less just a, a lineup of speakers. It was almost like a trip fest, you know, you have these, um, panels and you have like various speakers, you know, impressive list of speakers, um, whatnot, but you know, there's no like, uh, voting or, and if there was voting, it wasn't done in like a very public forum or a public way, right. if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. The, the last thing I do want to talk about on this before we move on is, is where this fits in into the GOP is, you know, no good, very bad year. I think if you, you know, most voters, aka real humans don't care how this went over. It likely doesn't make much of a difference in November, like Matthew said, but it, it has been a year of, you know, distractions, for lack of a better term, for them ahead of what's a pretty important election when, when you would think that the party would want to be, uh, you know, focused on the room left to cover for them ahead of that. And and I'm curious about, you know, like the line between the downfall of House Speaker Dennis Bonin and the impressions that a convention like this can leave at a minimum from like a fractured party standpoint in terms of the ousting of a chairman just ahead of a huge election by someone who is much more of a firebrand and much more to his right when there are all these conversations about how do you win new voters over? I mean, I, I don't know if, it, if, is there anything that we can take from the way this went over in the context of this year for, for the Texas GOP? I think it's been a rough year for the GOP and and whether that will play out in November, I think remains to be seen. I don't think it necessarily has to. I mean, some of this stuff is stuff that the voters don't necessarily care about, but you know, you starting with the absent, the ouster of, uh, Bonin or, you know, what his, what led to his, you know, future retirement. Um, after that, we all were kind of talking about like, Oh, you know, this, the way this is a problem electorally is because now they don't have this kind of leader kind of organizing and convening people for the May election. I mean, November election when, you know, the, the GOP is trying to hold on to the, the state house. And so the person who we kind of expected to go in and fill that vacuum was Greg Abbott. But then all of a sudden you have the coronavirus and Greg Abbott doesn't really have time to be, you know, I probably doesn't have the time to be spending as much time thinking about state house elections as he maybe thought he would in, in July right now. So you kind of lose him. Plus, you know, a lot of aspects of the coronavirus response aren't going well. And he doesn't, you know, you we've seen dips in his approval rating recently. So then you look, you know, well, you've got the GOP chair. Well, the GOP chair just got ousted. And, and we're, we're bringing in a new person, uh, you know, several months before an election. So, you know, in I think one way that it could possibly have an impact, aside from just like morale, you know, and one of the things you want is you want your people in your party excited out there, you know, knocking on doors and kind of doing the legwork from, for your candidates is that there's just the there's not a lot of options right now for the kind of convening bringing everyone together and say you know this is what we've got to do between now and november to to hold on to our you know completely firm grip of this state politically uh, and i i think that is is a cause for concern for the gop yeah there's a potential counterpoint to that is that they've got a new chairman now and they've got a new thing a new person talking and somebody with some energy who's out in front of this thing who can, 
is is a, an opportunity to change the subject. I mean, I, you know, I think if you tie these two things together, what you said about um, conventions not being something normal humans pay attention to, a convention going wrong really doesn't, you know, affect the voters, except as an illustration of Republican problems at the moment. And Alan West has a chance here, an opportunity here to change the subject and to, you know, get the Republicans all running in the same direction. We'll see what see what he does with it. And to the extent that it even matters how the state party is going in a year where the dominant conversation is going to be Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Yeah, I think uh, the election of West prompted a lot of glee from Democrats, you know, who kind of look at his controversial past, you know, um, a reporter Valeria had a nice story about him, you know, um, uh, after the election, you know, going through his problems in the military, his kind of very short tenure in Florida, going across. But um, and, and the Democrats particularly point to some of the kind of incendiary kind of he definitely like he's a fighter in politics. And and they, I think, like to want to be able to kind of paint the GOP around that kind of wing right now. On the other hand, you know, he might be able to kind of get some excitement out of that uh, disgruntled grassroots GOP uh, base. And also, you know, history has pro- proven he's an, a very effective fundraiser. You know, he he raised a ton of money in his congressional races in Florida. He raised like some, you know, 40 times or something more than James Dickey did in this GOP race. And so, you know, that that could be an area where, you know, he could really benefit the party. So, yeah, it, it remains to be seen what that impact will be for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors we've got to get to. Introducing Nativo Austin, downtown's first purposefully built and licensed Airbnb friendly building. Fully furnished condos from the 500,000s. Delivery fall 2021. Find out more at nativoaustin.com. And Macomb School of Business. Join us for Texas Macomb's Presents, a free monthly virtual event series with UT Austin faculty and industry leaders. More at macombspresents.macombs.utexas.edu. Okay, well, speaking of messes, let's move on to talk about next year's budget writing, which, as things stand now, lawmakers will possibly have to do with $11.5 billion less than originally estimated. Let's start with the news from Monday out of the Comptroller's office. Cassie, do you want to start us off again and, and lay out a bit more about what is driving this dive in the revenue estimate? Yeah. Uh, yes, I will definitely give you all the top lines before Ross, the expert, dives in. Um, huh. Are we down <laughs> to that? <laughs> that? That's what we have for an expert? It's just his fancy chair that he's leaning on. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, right, so Comptroller Glenn Hager uh, on Monday updated his revenue estimate for the current biennium. Um, and Alexi, you said, it, you, you know, the amount of GR uh, general revenue dollars available for the state's current two-year budget is projected, he said, to be $11.5 billion less than what he originally estimated. So we're going from $121 billion to about $110 billion. Um, you know, depending on which way you look at it, maybe like the more bleak news out of this was, um, you know, Hager saying that instead of the the state ending the the current uh, biennium, you know, which goes through August 2021 with a nearly 2.9 billion surplus, uh, it's expected to end now with a deficit of 4.6 billion. Um, so that's, you know, quite a difference. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Trying to be trying to. Anyway, um, Hager, of course, with these numbers, uh, stressed just kind of like an unprecedented amount of certainty. Um, he is basically forecasting all of this with the assumption that uh, restrictions on businesses, on the economy are going to be more or less over by the end of the calendar year, which I think that's still, uh, you know, being debated and, and, and we will see. Um, and yeah, I mean, he just said, uh, here you go, guys. Like this is this is what uh, lawmakers are going to have to come back to in January, um, and it more immediately impacts uh, you know the supplemental uh, budget that they will uh, that the ledge will uh, be passing next um, year when they meet. So, ah, well, <laughs> well, I am I I'm just like thinking about all the ways that the next session is going to be a mess. Um, but yeah. I am curious, like, what if anything? do we take from this estimate and this update in terms of whether efforts by leaders like Greg Abbott to quote unquote, save the economy are working? I mean, Ross, you talked to Hager this morning, you know, what is sort of the outlook on how these efforts may make a difference or not, right? Like if you're thinking about the dependency on the sales right. tax revenue, reopening restaurants and stores is really just a part of the equation, right? Like if people don't feel safe right. going out because we still don't have a hold on the virus, you he's, can't. He's, he's spent a lot of time talking about the psyche of Texas and about the how the consumers feel and how businesses feel. And, you know, when you get into the details of that, it's not really whether the restaurant's open, it's whether anybody will go into the restaurant that is open. And whether people will go into, you know, a big box store or a hardware store or wherever it is, whether employees are comfortable going in, whether schools are open and kids are in school freeing their parents to go to work. I mean, all of those things. And, you know, we had a conversation this morning and I asked him some of those questions and a lot of it's really hard to quantify. And, you know, they're in a big, you know, what he characterized at one point as a big sociology experiment. You know, they're, you know, part of this is, you're trying to make numbers and mathematical sense out of something that's not really numerical or mathematical. It's really, you know, about how people feel and when they feel that way. So we really quickly started talking about his assumptions in this thing. One of them, kind of to your point, is that we'll be back to some kind of normal economic, normal quote unquote, economic activity around the beginning of the year. And I think the, the proper way to couch this is to say the numbers that he just released are based on the assumption that we're going to be back in that situation. And if we're not going to be back in that situation, then the numbers are wrong. And, you know, that goes to the uncertainty that, that Cassie's talking about and that the controller's talking about. They're assuming that it's going to be a simple recovery, if a long one, and not what he called a W-shaped recovery, you know, where you... You have the economy go down because you have a wave of the coronavirus and then it recovers. And then you have a second wave of the coronavirus, which, you know, some some people think is possible and a second economic depression. Right now, he's saying it's going to be a slow return to normal. We think we'll be back around normal around the time the legislature comes in. And, you know, we think, you know, the economy will gradually improve and. He's got a couple of things going on here. As Cassie alluded to, there's the short term, which is the current budget, and they really have all the tools that they need to fix that. You know, in the, in the worst case, they could just grab the money or some of the money in the rainy day fund and fix it and walk away. 
But the legislature that comes in January has to write a budget for the next two years that starts a year, about a year from now, at the end of August 2021. And they're going to have to make a projection at the controller's office in December or January that says, you know, here's how much money we think we can raise as the state of Texas or that we project we're going to raise over the next 30 months. And as we know from the last four months, predicting any time frame at all is really risky. And when you're sort of basing a budget on that, it's going to make the legislature very conservative. It's going to make them pull back on spending. And if they have to pull back on spending the the two areas they've got to hit, because they're the two biggest pieces of the budget, are public education and health and human services. It strikes me as very optimistic to think that things are going to be back to normal by the turn of the year. I mean, that's the thing that scares me is like we've got this rough looking deficit there. But like what what's going to change between then and now that's that's going to that causes people to think that we're going to be able to go out and, you know, people are going to feel comfortable eating in restaurants and all that in in December when, you know, it doesn't seem like a vaccine timeline is that long. We're not going to be at a point where we have herd immunity by that time. Uh, I mean, I I have a hard time seeing it. I mean, it seems like, is there is there any conversation about, like, do we need to be preparing for even worse news than this? Yeah, but they don't, he doesn't want to make a, a recommendation or a, or a budget projection, a, fin, a finance projection that's overly pessimistic. That's what happened to the legislature in 2011 when Susan Combs was the controller and um, overestimated the size of the problem by billions and billions of dollars and ended up costing public education a ton of money that could have been spent in public education, you know, arguably set back a cohort of children, set back uh, public education to an extent that the things that started with the budget in 2011 really sort of came to the fore in the 2018 election, you know, when that was an education election. So he doesn't want to make a mistake like that. And you can always dial this back. You know, Mm -hmm. I asked him at one point, how sure are you that these numbers are right? And he said, as of today, this is the (laughs) best I've got. (laughs) Yeah. I think we're all using that mentality in a lot of aspects of our life. Right. Um, but I do think, you know, like when, when you are thinking about the uncertainty, the announcement of the, this update on the revenue estimate coming on, you know, the same week that we reached another grim marker when we crossed the 4,000 deaths line in terms of Texans who have been killed by the coronavirus, we have been getting to these thousand, you know, deaths markers much faster than we were before, you know. When we think about kind of the state of the pandemic in Texas, it doesn't seem like we're necessarily on a W trajectory because we never really got out of the first wave. And, you know, our positivity rate is still way past the governor's 10 percent warning flag. Our map on hospital use is pretty devastating when you when you look at the shading in, in some of those regions. We've seen the way the RGV is being devastated by the virus. I, you know, it, it, it seems we're still kind of figuring out how to assess the governor's mask mandate, um, how to assess whether we need to reclose everything down. But I am curious, you know, Matthew, is there any indication we are inching toward more restrictions or is there really no room for the governor for now to pursue that given all the back and forth in terms of messaging and enforcement and whatnot? 
Well, the governor's message is right now is that, no, we're not moving toward more restrictions. And he has taken the optimistic position that the mass, that there are signs that the mask order is working, right? So, you know, we were on this kind of steep upward trajectory for, you know, most of June and the first half of July, where cases, hospitalizations, all those things were kind of skyrocketing up that kind of, you know, alarming curve that kind of matches, you know, what what you see in all the models and everything like that. Um, we're now, you know, a little bit past two weeks since Abbott's mask order. Um, it's around the time where you'd start seeing the effect of that order. And what we've seen is we're not on that huge, steep increase, you know, uh, for the last few days, things, new cases, hospitalizations, things like that have leveled out. And I think it's probably most experts would agree that it's probably a little bit too soon to kind of claim victory on this. You know, um, I think we need a few more days of data and, you know, kind of keep seeing these things go in the right direction, but you can definitely hear it in Abbott's public comments, you know, uh, a while back, he was talking about, like, if things don't get better, if things keep getting worse, we're going to have to shut down the economy again. You know, then last week, I believe it was, he said that, you know, we're that's not happening right now. Um, and then the last few days, he's been he's been citing these statistics. He's been talking about a study out of the University of North Texas saying that the mask order has worked. Um, you know, there was some information about the CDC that if everyone keeps wearing masks, then then a lot of this can get under control. So. Honestly, right now, I don't think there's there's I, we can definitively say that we're not in a position where we're about to get another shutdown. Right. Like that is not where Abbott's head is at. And the it's a little bit more uncertain as to whether the big increase is starting to get under control. And it's definitely too soon to say that we're going to start seeing cases and hospitalizations and things start going down. But at least the past few days hasn't haven't been as bad as the weeks before, and you know hopefully that trend will continue. Yeah, you know, it's not, gonna... nece not necessarily this or that. You know, they, the argument back at the beginning was, you know, that it you know it's wrong to say either you are fighting the pandemic and killing the economy or saving the economy and fighting the pandemic. They seem to be coming you know, slowly to sort of a middle idea. It may be wrong, uh, but they seem to be coming to this idea that, look, if we will all put on masks and, you know, um, be careful out there, then we'll be able to open the economy. It's sort of like this and that. And whether that works or not is to be seen. But, you know, I think that's where, you know, you get sort of the optimism about the medicine and the public health stuff from the Greg Abbotts of the world and some of the optimism about the economy from the Glenn Hagers of the world. Yeah. And, w and one thing I, I should kind of clarify about what I say, when I say things look a little bit better, it's, it's mainly in these past few days, it's it, the growth rate has looked a little bit better. We've kind of leveled off, but we've leveled off in a pretty problematic area. There's right. over 10,000 people in hospitals. There are hospitals being overrun, especially in South Texas, you know, but also in, in the cities and things like that. So it's not like we're, you know, back to where we were in April, where, where things were very much under control. We've leveled off at a point where we were really looking at the numbers and thinking they can't keep going up like this or else we are in major, major, major trouble. And at, at least at this point, they haven't been going up like that in the last few days. 
Yeah, I do think I do think the like this or that conversation, you know, for me watching kind of the horrible state of things in, in South Texas and the RGV, it, it kind of has put a finer point on how maybe lopsided or maybe oversimplified some of the previous measurements we were uh, seeing as priorities by state leaders were, right? Like there were conversations about hospital capacity and how we were fine there. Um, but we were talking about that statewide. And, you know, now you have hotspots like Hidalgo County and the RGV, where it's not like you're in Harris County, where there are multiple major hospitals to treat people, right? And there, this is a community where almost everyone is Hispanic, where they have higher uninsured rates in the state as a whole, where the poverty rate is much higher than for the state. And we don't have a real sense for disparities and who has the ability to work from home and who doesn't. And I think that the RGV in particular has kind of thrown these conversations we were having about capacity and, and numbers that were often seen from like a statewide level thrown them for a loop as we have seen more and more of these hotspots crop up, particularly outside of the metros that have maybe more hospital capacity. Yeah, I think one of the important things to note is that Abbott's strategy, you know, a few months ago was kind of opening, you know, understanding that there were going to be hotspots that popped up and then you kind of flood the zone with those those hotspots with resources. And that was kind of the Amarillo model, right? Where that was the first place where things looked really bleak in the state. And Abbott deployed resources there and, you know, at least at that time seemed to get that curve going back down. The problem now is that the hotspots are so numerous and and in so many places that you can't kind of flood the zone anymore. And, you know, we had a story over the weekend about a... Um, a, a case, you know, uh, where someone was in the, a patient in South Texas who needed to get to a new hospital space and they had to fly, you know, 700 miles to the panhandle to find an open hospital bed. And, and that's the problem, right? Is that, um, there's just too many hotspots now. You can't, you can't have that kind of surgical approach when the whole system is, is being taxed. Right. Well, on those bleak terms, that is all we have for you today. It was quite a quite a bleak one in many ways. Um, as always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week, Texas A&M University, Raise Your Hand Texas, Nativo Austin, and the Macomb School of Business. On behalf of Cassie, Ross, and Matthew, and our producer, Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>